We have finished Acts chapter 4 and we're moving into Acts chapter 5. We come to the end of chapter 4. There's, it's very harmonious. There's great unity of heart and purpose. A great sharing of resources. <clears throat> and even in the midst of this, <clears throat> excuse me, there's an introduction to Barnabas. There in verse 36. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement. What a great name. There's, there's nobody else that gets that same name. He stands by himself. What a way to be remembered forever, that you were the son of encouragement. A Levite of the country of Cyprus. He came like the others, and having the surplus land sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Barnabas is one of those people whose place uh, and importance is so often uh, unend- un- uh, underestimated. But as we come to chapter 5, the sweet sound of harmony is broken. And we find quickly what the cause of the issue was. It's important for us to see that when they, we look at, uh, go back to chapter 4 and, and verse 32. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither did anyone say that any things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them, upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who had possessions of lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds to them that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet and they distributed them to each as anyone had need. Now again, as we pointed out, the same thing was similar in chapter 2. And and what it is talking about here are those who had excess would bring in and sell that which was excess and then they would, they would give uh, to the poor and needy to have, them, have that distributed to the poor and needy by the apostles. No one was compelled by God to do this. It's very important as we understand what happens in chapter 5. No one was compelled to do this. And you understand, too, that it had to be excess that they would give because if they gave away their own house to someone else, then they would be homeless and needy. So we we have to understand the context of what is being spoken of here. If they gave away all the food in their pantry, then they would need food. So those were things that were of excess that they gladly converted to cash to help those who were who were less fortunate. But then as we come to chapter 5, there was a husband and wife who sold a property but desired to keep a portion of the proceeds for themselves, which was certainly, once again, within their rights. However, as we read, they, were, they conspired together to misrepresent what they did. <clears throat> a certain man named Ananias 
But Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds. And his wife, also being aware of it, brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back a part of the price of the land for yourself? And notice what he says. While it remained, was it not your own? You weren't forced to sell it. And after it was sold, was it not in your control? You could have easily apportioned what you want for yourself. There was no, nothing compelling you to, to do and say to give all. Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. So what's going on here? Well, there are always those who who want praise, who want people to notice what they do. And as they laid the proceeds at the feet of the apostles, it was probably very clear that they had said something, this is all the money from this land that we sold. Here, here. And maybe they made it, made, maybe they dropped it a little bit so it would make a little bit of noise as it fell at the apostles' feet. Somehow here there was a show that was being made and statements to the fact that this is the full proceeds of the piece of property that we sold. What he said and what he actually did were two different things. Again, if he had said, we sold a piece of property and here's half the proceeds, everything would have been fine. No issue. If he said, we sold a piece of property and here's 40% of it, or 10% of it, or, or 20%, everything would have been fine. Ananias and his wife are similar to the fig tree that Jesus cursed in Mark chapter 11. Some people have read that over the years and thought, wow, this is this real hard, terrible thing to do to a tree. But in Mark 11 and verse 12, the next day when they had come from Bethany, he was hungry and seeing from afar a fig tree, the key he was having leaves. He went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And of course, they came out the next day and the tree was withered. What was the issue here? Why, why did Jesus curse the tree? Well, the, the key is that it had the fullness of leaves. It was showing itself to be in that time when it would be producing figs, even though it was out of season. 
And so as Jesus approached it, and as anyone would come to it, it would look like something that it was not. It was, in essence, an object lesson about hypocrisy. It was showing to be a tree that would be full of figs and it had nothing on it. But it was making a show like it was full of it. And this is the same kind of idea that happens here. Ananias and Sapphira were making a show of something. In the church, in any period, hypocrisy is a blight. And a church cannot be built upon hypocrisy. It can't be built up by hypocrites. And Ananias and his wife had made a gross underestimation of what they were doing. But something Peter says and makes very clear in chapter 5 and verse 3, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? and to keep back part of the price of the land for yourself. You see the first part of the question? Why has Satan filled your heart? What does that tell us about the condition of Ananias and Sapphira for that matter? Their heart was not full of the Lord. Satan was the one calling the shots. And so therefore, they followed the leader of their life. Why did Satan fill your heart? So it tells us about them. Their heart was full of Satan. To lie to the Holy Spirit. It's perhaps a surprise to many that Peter would use such a concept here. Yet in doing so, he brings us squarely to a, a very important teaching regarding the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you in Sunday school have already had some about the Holy Spirit. Today, you're getting a double dose. For those of you who are in the adult vacation Bible school and we talked about the Holy Spirit, you're getting a refresher. Because perhaps 90% of what went on during that time may have passed out of our minds. So this will make it start to come back into light. In the passage, Peter points then to a very important aspect for us to see of the Holy Spirit, and that is His personhood. The Holy Spirit is a personal being. Now in saying that, we're not saying He's a human being. But he is a personal being. That is, he has pers personality. He has the characteristics of personhood. He is, for lack of a better term, and to accommodate our understanding, a person. But not a human. He has personality. It's an important consideration. For often, the Holy Spirit is portrayed as some sort of power, or force, or emanation. From God. Well, let's make very clear. The Holy Spirit 
is not an it. If the Holy Spirit were a college professor, on his door, or where his name is listed, he would put the pronouns that he goes by, he and him. There'd be no confusion of pronouns. He would not put it or any of the other nonsense that's going on with the use of pronouns. I don't have to honor anybody's choice of pronouns. If they're female, it's she. If it's male, it's he. And I don't care if you say, I'm neither one of those. Then you're really confused and you need help. The Holy Spirit's not an it. He's not an influence. He's not a power. He has power in order to influence us. And by that power, he can influence. And I think because of the regular name of the Holy Spirit, or even earlier when it was, he was referred to as the Holy Ghost, there seemed to be much mystery surrounding and shrouding him. And for that reason, he's often neglected. In many cases, hardly ever spoken of. And in other cases, exaggerated. And made to be something he is not. The fact that he is often neglected is seen even in the Baptist hymnal that we just sang from a, a short while ago. There are seven songs about the Holy Spirit in the section titled God the Holy Spirit. There are 160 songs about Jesus. 160 songs about Jesus. Seven about the Holy Spirit. And many hymns about the Holy Spirit would lead one to think that he's a force or a power, not the third person of the Holy Trinity. Yet, we would not feel good at all. We would think it's a terrible thing if we neglected the doctrine of God the Father. But it's also a terrible thing to neglect the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Let's look at some of the facts pointing to the personhood of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you first, if you will, to turn to John chapter 16. John chapter 16, verse 7. Jesus said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment because the ruler of the world is judged. Now, notice we pick up at verse 13. However, 
when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority. But whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will tell you things to come. He will glorify Me. For He will take of what is Mine and declare it to you. All things of the Father has our mind, therefore I said he will take of mine and declare it to you. Him and his are each used one time. He is used 11 times. As Martin Lloyd-Jones said, the Bible is inspired even down to the pronouns. When Jesus spoke in Matthew 28 and verse 19, giving what is called the Great Commission, it said we are to go to all nations, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and in the power of the Holy Spirit or in the force of the Holy Spirit, but in the name of the Holy Spirit. This Trinity, God, three in one. By the way, I know there are some who will say, I don't believe in the Trinity because the Word is not in Scripture. You can't find the word Trinity anywhere in Scripture. So therefore, I'm not supposed to believe it. Again, those who fall victim to that kind of thinking, as we have said before, fall into what we call the word-concept fallacy. The word-concept fallacy. What is Matthew 28 and verses 18 to 20 called? In many Bibles, even it's introduced that that subject of that section is called the Great Commission. What do we speak? What is the name given to these verses? It's called the Great Commission. Great and Commission do not don't even show up in those verses. But people say that's the Great Commission. It's the concept that's there. Do you know the word omniscience is not in Scripture? But we use it as the concept to show that God through Scripture, shows us that He is all-knowing. The the word omnipresence is not in Scripture. But it's a concept of Scripture showing us that God is everywhere at the same time in the same amount. Omnipotence, not in Scripture, but it's a concept, once again, that's teaching us that God is all-powerful. And so they're not words that are in the Bible, but they are concepts of God, about God, that are taught in Scripture. If we turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 14, Second Corinthians 13 and verse 14. Notice what we read. 
the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The communion or fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Now, when was the last time you had fellowship with a force or a power? Yes, I fellowshiped with, with electricity last night. In Acts chapter 15 and verse 28, Paul says, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit. Can we say that of a force? It seemed good to the wind to blow on the other side of the road, but not on mine. Romans 8, verse 27 tells us the mind of the Spirit. The mind of the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 19, we are called the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now I'll bring this up just because I want to make something clear and I don't want somebody to, to go back and read something and say, well, wait, wait, wait. There's something that shows up. It's an unfortunate rendering in the King James. And again, I'm not poking fun at the King James. I really would love to have been able to find out why they did this and why they did it just in Romans. But in Romans chapter 8 and verse 16, Romans 8 and verse 16, what should have been the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit. For some reason, <clears throat> unexplainable, they choose, chose to use the word itself. And the same thing in verse 26. It uses the word itself rather than the better and less confusing Himself when referring to the Holy Spirit. Again, I'm not condemning, I'm just curious as to why they used He in all the other places that refer to the Holy Spirit, but in that, particular in that particular place, and in just that one letter, they did that. But see, that sort of thing can be confusing because we're, we're not calling the Holy Spirit an it. We don't want anybody to think that way. The Scripture wants you to know that the Holy Spirit has a personhood about it, Him. See, you can easily get into that kind of mindset. There are personal actions that are ascribed to the Holy Spirit. Notice in John 14 in verse 26. But when the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He he will do what? He will teach you all things. And what's next? He will bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. So there's activity. He's called the helper, and then his activity is to teach and to bring to your remembrance. So that's a, another sign of the personality and personhood, the personal actions 
of the Holy Spirit. If we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 11. After giving a list of, of gifts from the Holy Spirit. Notice what it says. Verse 11, but one in the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. As he wills. By the way, every spiritual gift comes from where? The Holy Spirit. That's why it's a spiritual gift. That's where it gets its name. As also... In Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit, the living proof of the Spirit in us, Holy Spirit, we're in working in us. He is distinguished from the gifts. He gives them and he distributes them, how? As he wills. Another sign of personhood. He has a will. It's the same will as the Father and the Son, but he does this as he wills. The wind doesn't blow as it wills. The wind, the the electricity doesn't do as it wills. There's no power or force that does what it wills, only by how it is directed. So when we come back to Acts chapter 5, you remember, that's where we started. Peter says, why did you lie to the Holy Spirit? Again, you can't lie to electricity or any other force. But notice he takes us to see that lying to the Holy Spirit is lying to to God in verse 4 you have not lied to men but to God now what did he say prior to that he lied to the Holy Spirit put the two together what's he saying the Holy Spirit is God and in verse 9 again he refers to the Holy Spirit here as the whole, the Spirit of the Lord Jesus said, when the Helper comes whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. This is a special work that the Holy Spirit accomplishes and does. That's part of the realm in which he works. So we have covered much here today. And truly, if at all I have succeeded in showing you from God's word the blessing of the Holy Spirit, I want to bring you to one more place. In John chapter 14. John chapter 14 and verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper. 
that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him. Why? For he dwells with you and will be in you. And I will not leave you as orphans. The Holy Spirit is a deposit. It's an earnest. The Holy Spirit is Christ in us. He dwells with you and will be in you. Realize that all holiness you have comes from the Holy Spirit indwelling. As the name points out, his special work is to produce holiness. And my friends, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's because the Holy Spirit has caused you to see, has caused you to hear, has caused you to receive the truth. If your heart has been changed, it's because the Holy Spirit changed it. And if you have grown in grace and knowledge of Christ, it's because He is at work in you personally. I want to close with a, an old hymn. It's not in any of our books. But it reads as a prayer. Holy Spirit, from on high, bend on us a pitying eye. Animate the drooping heart. Bid the power of sin depart. Light up every dark recess of our hearts ungodliness. Show us every devious way where our steps have gone astray. Help us with repentant grief, humbly to implore relief. Then the Savior's blood reveal all our deep disease to heal. Other groundwork should we lay, sweep those empty hopes away. Make us know that Christ alone can for human guilt atone. May we daily grow in grace and pursue the heavenly race. Trained in wisdom, led by love, till we reach our rest above. Let's stand together for prayer.